Good morning, my name's Peter Milliken, I'm one of the uh, pastors here as well, and uh, got the privilege of, privilege of preaching this morning again, so I want to let you know I've got an investment opportunity for you this morning, actually, and um, it's really, it's an investment of the lifetime, you, uh, you're very lucky this morning that you get to sit here and listen to an investment opportunity, and uh, many of you have probably heard of some investment opportunities over your lifetime. Maybe you've even taken up some and they've worked out positive or maybe even not so positive. Um, and so I want to give you the opportunity this morning to listen to an investment opportunity that will be the best investment you will ever make in your life. And hopefully that's enough to draw you in this morning. Uh, but I can tell you now that this will be the best investment that you will ever make or ever have made. And so this morning, we're going to look at that investment. And just in case some of you aren't sure how investments work, the, the idea of an investment is that you would forego something now and get a return later that would be better than what you forewent at the start. It's the idea that you might suffer a little bit in some way so that down the track, you would actually get something better back in return because you forewent something now. And now there's lots of investments that you can come across in life, right? There's things like, uh, there's financial investments, there's real estate investments, uh, there's stock uh, options and those sorts of things, right? And so I just, let's just look at a couple of investments that you could have made in the past and see how they would have turned out. On the screen, you're going to see a, a picture here. This is uh, Burley Heads in 1978 at the Gold Coast. And you could have picked up a parcel of land and a little beach shack there for about $65,000 in 1978. Here's a, uh, a picture of Burley Heads. That was uh, still about 10 years ago, I believe. And I uh, jumped on realestate.com really quickly and had a look for real estate that was for sale around this Burley Heads area. And there was one going for about $9.5 million. So, uh, in the space of about 40 years, your investment from 65000 would have grown to about $9.5 million in 40 years. Now, if my calculations are correct, that's a 14,500% return on your investment in 40 years. Not a bad little investment, right? And don't we all wish we bought a little beach shack at Burley Heads for $65,000 in 1978? And I don't think anyone here did. If you did come and see me, I'd like to uh, just have a chat, you know. <laughs> in uh, 2009, there was this digital currency that was invented. And it came pretty much a bit more well-known in 2011. It was called Bitcoin. And uh, hands up if you've heard of Bitcoin. Yeah, everyone under the age of 50. Uh, in 2011, you could buy one Bitcoin for $1. Fast forward, uh, what are we, 12 years later, 2023, one Bitcoin is now worth $30,000. And it's been, you know, that's actually dropped significantly in the last 6 to 12 months, uh, maybe more than that. It was almost up to about 100000 at one stage, but it's at 30000 now. So if you were to buy one Bitcoin back in 2011, you could trade it in for $30,000. And again, if my maths is correct, and it, I think it is, uh, what, what was my number here? I can't even see it. 
It's a, it's a, oh, there we go. Three million percent return on investment. There you go. Three million percent return on investment. If you had invested $1,000 back in 2011, you'd have $30 million right now because you sold Bitcoin, because you bought a digital currency that doesn't even physically exist, right? And you could imagine, what can you do with $30 million right now? What would you do with $30 million? Just turn to the person next to you for a second and say, what's the first thing you would buy if I handed you $30 million and you had to buy something? Don't think too hard, just turn to the person next to you, what are you buying with $30 million? All right, wrap those conversations up. Way, some of you are getting way too excited about this. But, I mean, you got $30 million, you get, you know, that's going to get you the best house available in Toowoomba, right? You could drive whatever car you want. Uh, you, could, you could give up working if you didn't want to work. You didn't have to work another day in your life. Uh, you could go on endless holidays. You could, you, you know, you could pretty much do whatever you want. And that is, you know, that's an appealing thing, right? And that's what sometimes money can, can give us. But the problem with getting a $30 million investment or return on your investment in, in 10 years, let's just say for a moment that uh, it, it made you completely happy, completely fulfilled, and you got everything that you wanted, right? Even though we know, we all know that that's probably not true, that's not true, but let's just say for argument's sake that, that it did, right? What's the problem with having $30 million? One day, you're going to die. And it's not going to be worth anything to you, right? And we don't know when that might be. It might be 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the track, right? But that $30 million that is in your account or whatever you want to do with it actually becomes useless to you, right? There's nothing that you can do with it anymore. It doesn't postpone the inevitable fact that one day you will no longer be alive and be able to actually use that money. So even if that money was to bring short-term fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and everything you were looking for, eventually, one day, that money will fail you, right? And that's the problem that we have with these investments that we can get into, whether it be stock or real estate or Bitcoin or what, what, fill in the gap there of the investment opportunities that are in front of all of us at different times, is that eventually they are no good to us. They only actually give a, res a return for a short amount of time. So what if there was an investment opportunity that lasted beyond death? Would wouldn't that be the best investment that you could make, that it would actually go on beyond the grave? that you wouldn't get to a point where it became useless to. Actually, it would just keep going and going and going and going, and it would never stop. And the returns would just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. That is an investment that would be worthy to sacrifice for. That would be an investment that would be essentially the smartest investment that you could ever make. And so this morning, we're going to look at a parable where Jesus talks about an investment that you can make with your life and your finances that will give you a return for eternity. 
never-ending, never-ceasing, always bringing return to you forever. And basically, what Jesus is going to ask us to do in this parable, and those who follow Jesus, is he's going to say to you, you should give up what you cannot keep to gain what cannot be lost. You should give up what you cannot keep to gain what cannot be lost. This parable is found in Luke 16. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV translation this morning. But I'll reference a couple other translations because they word things a little bit differently in this parable. Here we go, verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So we have a rich man who employed a manager to oversee his portfolio. But he's unhappy because reports have come in that this manager has been wasting the rich man's possessions. It doesn't say exactly how this played out or what this looked like, but because of it, he fires him. He actually says, you will no longer be my manager anymore. But before this actually takes place, there's a delay. There's a delay period where he wants to look at the books, right? And you're going to come and you're going to give an account to me and I'm going to then... Get, tell you, you no longer have a job. But he knows it's coming, right? He knows he's fired. He knows it's over. But he's got a delay period between then and when it actually takes place, right? Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. The manager has to reassess, right? And you would also do this if you lost your job or you went into some sort of financial hardship. You would have to reassess. And he looks at his options. And then what is he going to do in a short space of time? He has to make a decision. And he says, I don't have the strength to go and dig holes all day long all the time. Maybe I could do it for a day or half a day, but I don't have the strength to do it all the time, full-time basis. So that's out of the question. And I'm too ashamed to beg, right? And some of us think, well, you should just suck it up. But if you think about it, you know, he, he was a manager of somebody who was very wealthy. He would go about doing his business. And to be able to go from that to begging on the streets would be very difficult. Most of us wouldn't do it. And so he says, I can't do that. And then he has this eureka moment where he says, I know what I'll do. He doesn't tell us. He says, I know what I'll do. Eureka. I got it. I got it. So what does he decide to do? Verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Now, there's a bit of debate here about what the manager is doing, and I'll, I'll get to that uh, shortly. 
but let's just work with the figures here of what's actually happening and, and putting it into the context, right? The NIV uh, calculates it already. Some of you in your ESV or other translations, it might say 100 measures of oil. The NIV does the calculation for us. That's about 900 gallons of olive oil, obviously for an American audience, but for Australians, that's about three, between three and three and a half thousand litres of olive oil, right? It's not valvoline oil where you can just duck down to super cheap and grab that. Uh, it's not coming out of the ground, freely flowing. This is olive oil. If you were to make olive oil, it's very labor intensive back then, right? First of all, you have to have a lot of land to grow olive trees, right? Then the olive trees grow up, they fruit. You would go along and you would have a very long pole and you would go back and forth on the tree branches to knock the olives off. Then you'd pick them up off the ground, you'd put them in a container, you'd take that container to a press, you would press the olive oils down and some of the oil would release, right? It's a very labor-intensive job to produce olive oil, right? And can you imagine how many olives you would need to, to collect and take to the press and, and press down to get, let's say, 100 liters, right? And this man owes over 3,000 liters of olive oil. It is a large, significant debt that he owes. It would be the equivalent of about three years' salary for the average man back then. And the manager says, quickly, let's change your bill. Instead of 100 measures, write 50. Instead of 900 gallons, write 450. Right there, 50% discount. Now, what do you think the debtor might say to this man? Well, I like you. If there's anything I can do for you at any stage, you just come on by. If you ever need a place to stay, you've got a place at ours. Right? That's the first man. Then he goes to the second, verse 7. Then he asks the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he come, next debtor comes along, 100 measures of wheat, about 39,000 litres, uh, represented about, a, a, about the yield you would get from 100 acres of grain. And it's about eight to nine years of salary for the average labourer and worker back then. So again, a very significant debt that this man owes. And the manager goes and gives him a 20% discount straight away, changes the bill, saves him a couple of years' worth of labor. What do you think his reply would have been? Are you serious? Oh, I like you. You know, if there's anything I can ever do for you, you just let me know. If you ever need a place to stay, you've got a place at ours. Now, this is why the parable has got the title, and you'll see this in your, in your Bible at the beginning of chapter 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. And shrewd has this idea of being quite cunning, almost a little bit deceitfully smart in the way that you operate. I think this is a bad title. For this parable. 
You see, it's likely here that what a manager would do in those days is the way that they would get paid was they would actually get commission of the debt that was owed. And that was the way that they would get income. And so when the manager is cancelling debt off his master's bill, he's not actually stealing from his master's money, he's foregoing his own commission. And that is lost a lot of times in the context. He's actually sacrificing his own money that he could use in the short term to have long-term friends and favours up his sleeve. Now we have the reaction of the rich man to what his manager has done. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Let's just look at that for a second. If the dishonest manager had ripped off his master even more than he already had before he lost his job, do you think a rich man would have commended him for that? That doesn't make sense. Would he be happy about the idea, oh, thank you for wasting half of my income from that olive oil and 20% of the grain and years of labor that I would have had. Thanks for getting rid of that. Right? That just doesn't make sense. Yet he calls him dishonest, and I think that goes back to verse 1, where he's called him in because he's been wasting his possessions, right? So he's, a, he's still a dishonest manager, but he's commended. And he's commended because he has acted shrewdly. And there's that word again, shrewdly. The word there is, uh, in the Greek, is phronimos. Uh, you might have heard of the idea of phrenology. Um, it doesn't really happen anymore, but it was, it was said to be a, a bit of a medical expertise where they would study the cranium um, and the, the bumps on it and the way that it was sort of formed together to, to show how smart people were, right? And they've since found out that that's actually got nothing to do with how smart people are. Because we've all seen rugby players that have got these meatheads and they're dumb as bricks. So clearly that's not indicative but it's where we get this idea of phrenology comes from this idea of phronimos, right? And just flick over to, to Luke 12 for a second with me. This is, again, Jesus speaking, same author, same book, few chapters earlier. Jesus explaining a parable. And he says in verse 42, the Lord answers... Who then is faithful and wise man is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? All right, we can't go into all the story of this, but who then is the faithful and wise manager? The word there, wise, phronimos. Phronimos, same word. In fact, it's used multiple times in the New Testament, always translated within its context. As wise, smart, intelligent, thoughtful. All of the uh, Greek sources that are written at a similar time as the New Testament. Phronimos, smart, wise, intelligent, thoughtful. This is the only place that we translate that word as shrewd. And we do that because of the context where we think he's ripping his master off. 
when, when you understand the background, he's not ripping his master off as well at all. He's actually using his own money, not his master's. And so I think shrewd is not the right translation there. I think it should be smart, wise, intelligent. And now Jesus is going to say a couple of things that will unlock the whole meaning of this parable. Okay, that's the end of the parable, that's the end of the story. And now Jesus is going to help us understand what he wants us to know about this. This is halfway through verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd, there's that word again, smart, intelligent, wise, thoughtful. More shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus identifies two kinds of people here. People of this world or people of this age and people of the light. Who are these two groups of people? John 12, 36, Jesus is referred to as the light. Right? He's the light of the world. And this is what he says in John 12, 36. Don't need to turn there, it'll be on the screen. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Children of light are those who have come to believe in Jesus as God and trusted in Him for the salvation of their sins. And when you come to the light and you believe in the light, you get the light and you become children of the light. People of this world, who are they? A few chapters later, Luke 20, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. People of this age, they get married, right? And they are wrapped up in this age and everything that's going on in this age. They're concerned about these things. They are focused on this life, this life only, and will not participate in the kingdom to come after the resurrection. They are the unsaved, according to Jesus. People of children of light, people of this world, people of this age can be translated that way too. So Jesus is saying here that the unsaved person gives more foresight to their future than the saved when it comes to wealth. The wise manager recognized that his money was going to run out, so he invested it to gain favor and friendship with people. He had great smarts, great foresight, great wisdom to look to future events and invest accordingly. So when he had no money, and he had no job, and he had nowhere to live, and he had no food to put on the table, he could go to those people and they would welcome him into their home. And he would be able to stay with them. And they would provide food. And if you know anything about kind of the Jewish background of hospitality, how you would even treat a stranger, and how much better would you treat somebody 
who had saved you thousands and thousands of dollars and years of labour. This is what uh, a Lucan scholar, Daryl Bock, says about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that God's children who have a heavenly future should be as diligent in assessing the long-term effects of their actions as those who do not know God are in protecting their earthly well-being. Jesus is saying that God's children who have a heavenly future should be as diligent in assessing the long-term effect of their actions as those who do not know God are in protecting their earthly well-being. How does one do that? Verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Notice what the text says about worldly wealth. It says when it is gone. It doesn't say if it goes. It says when. Because how much of your wealth is going to be gone one day? How much of our money will we take with us after we die? Answer, none of it. Not one single cent will go with us. It is no good to us after that. And so all of our money and all of our wealth will be gone one day. And we may pass it on down to future generations and people, but it will be no good to us. And we will have no, nothing to use it on. We can't take it with us. And it's a sure thing that we will die, and it's a sure thing that that money will be no good to us then. And so when Jesus says we should use our worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves so that when it is gone, I, I just assume he's talking about when we die. Up until that point, we will always need money in some way. right? We'll always need to use it because it's part of this world and the way that we buy things and spend things and the world that we live in. right? Everybody needs money. That's just the world that we live in, the reality of it. And so when it is gone, Jesus must be talking about death. And he says, the friends that you gain for yourselves will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Well, if they're welcoming us into eternal dwellings, I think it's that these are friends that you used your money to gain for Christ. I think the parable is clear that the manager gave up his money to win favor with his master's debtors, and it was these same debtors that would welcome him into their houses. Similarly, the one who uses his money to win friends for the gospel and share Christ, will be welcomed into a heavenly existence by these people. Because you had a hand in the reason that they're there. You actually played a part in their salvation with your money. You had a hand in investing in their eternity 
with your temporal money. Isn't that a wonderful truth to think of, to dwell on? Quite simply, the point of the parable is give up what you cannot keep to gain something that can't be lost. You think about that for a second. On the other side of death, you're going to, if you believe in Jesus and are saved by grace through what he has done and accomplished, you will go into an eternal kingdom that will have no end. It will just keep going and going and going. And there'll be no more pain and no more death and no more sickness. And as you enter into this kingdom on the other side of death, there will be people there who will greet you. And they will welcome you in because they have gone and, and they will thank you because you played a part in their salvation. That God used you and your finances and your resources to get the gospel to them. And they will joyously celebrate with you and you with them in the kingdom forever. Now, is that a wise thing for you to invest in? It is eternally smart. Eternally phronimos. So how can we use our money to impact people for Jesus, for the gospel, for the kingdom? Let me give you a couple examples from the past. There's a guy called John Henry Newman. He was alive in the 1800s. And at one time, he was considered basically to be the leading intellectual um, probably in all of England. And his influence was, was almost magisterial in the Church of England. And he would write these magnificent sermons that people would just love to listen to and read. And uh, he also wrote, wrote he, he had a, a knack for this, this poetry that he would write, sacred poetry that people would just kind of hang off every word of his. And he was at Oxford, and he was one of the leading intellectuals there, and so people just loved John Henry Newman. And he had great influence there. He was actually the pretty much the primary theological voice there at one stage. And he decided to uh, actually leave Oxford and he became a Roman Catholic priest and he left his elegant surroundings and his financial stability that would have seen him through to the rest of his life and he went to work in Birmingham in England. And if you know anything about Birmingham back then, it was basically... Steel furnace country. And people that worked there worked in the steel furnace. And what he did is he gathered the children there and he gave them an education. And he taught them how to read and taught them how to write and he shared the gospel with children. And when his colleagues heard about him choosing to do this, they could not understand why he would do such a thing. Why would you leave Oxford? For Birmingham? Why would you leave this office and this prestige and this financial stability and go to Birmingham where there is no guaranteed money 
and you're going to start teaching children when there are men and women just hanging off every word here. And his response to them was simple. The people of Birmingham have souls too. How much is a soul worth? Can you put a dollar figure on it? You see, John Newman gave up something he could not keep. Financial stability, prestige, a nice comfy office, fame, popularity. To gain something that could, be, could not be lost. Salvations. In young children. When my dad was nine years old, his uh, auntie and uncle paid for him to go to a Christian camp. Three pound, ten shilling for him to go. It's about seven dollars. Heard the gospel, came down the front, gave his life to Jesus. soul saved an eternity changed a family impacted I don't know if I'd stand here today on this stage if that didn't happen seven dollars at a Christian camp they invested something they could never keep to gain something that could never be lost. Use your temporal money for eternal rewards. How might you do this? What does it look like for us? There are so many ways, so many options in front of you for you to be able to do this. Let me run through a couple for you. Compassion, international. That's something that a lot of people do here. It's about $50 a month, and I know that can be significant for some people. That can be a lot of money. But not only are you giving money towards somebody to have the physical needs that they need to live here on earth, but you are investing in them that they might hear the gospel and come to know Jesus as their saviour and live for eternity. For $50 a month. That is a smart investment. You could pay for someone to go to a camp. We've got youth in this church. And there's Christian camps that are available, and they are, they are quite expensive. 
not going to lie, they, they're very expensive to get this. $400 for a week. And that's a lot of money, I know. But it could end in an eternity. Not just for a young boy or girl, but as they grow up, their whole family. That would be a smart investment. Support missionaries. There are missionaries out there on the front line sharing the gospel, doing the hard work of, of trying to reach a culture and getting Bibles into places where there are no Bibles, trying to share the good news of Jesus. And it costs money. It's just, it's just the world that we live in. And there's people that we can give money to who will go and take the gospel to places that you can never get to yourself. And you can choose how much you would give to them. But every little bit is an investment in a future eternal kingdom. I mean, this is why we support Nepal. This is why we're doing trips to Nepal. This is why we're trying to invest our finances as a church into churches over there. Because they're reaching people that we can't get to for the gospel. And there will be people in Nepal who one day die and they will be in heaven and they will be there because some of us invested money into that venture, into those churches, into those pastors, into those places. You could support somebody who goes, who wants to go and do some study at a Bible college. Uh, again, I stand here and uh, I know I've got Plenty to learn about the scriptures still. And you figure out when you go to Bible college pretty much how much you don't know more than what you do know. But uh, people paid people paid for me to learn this. They invested. And uh, everywhere, get it together, Peter. Everywhere I go, every time I get to preach, a little bit of their investment goes out through me. And I hope that I steward that. And I think there'll be people who the Lord uses me in some way to bring about salvation. And when they get to heaven, um, there will be people who invested in me. And there will be a connection there because they use their money to bring about salvation in others. And that's the beauty of investing in this is that it's not just a one-off deal. It's like it branches off into other areas. And you invest in one person and that person goes and shares the gospel with multiple. And, and those people then go and share the gospel. It just keeps going and going and going. And then we go into the kingdom and it just never ends. And so one small investment of your money into, into some sort of gospel action 
actually doesn't just stop at that one place because it just keeps going on and going on and going on. And that's the beauty of it. And there will be people who have invested in things will have no idea how far that money will travel through the gospel and who you will reach. Until one day we end up in the kingdom and there will be people who will come up and thank you. And you'll say, I don't even know who you are. And I say, yeah, but you gave money to this person or this thing. And that thing came to my village and he shared the gospel. And I'm here because of that and you gave into that. Now, why would we ever do this if uh, in our current climate, right, there is a cost of living crisis? I know that money is tight. I know that you've had to reassess budgets. I know you haven't been able to have as much money as you probably did 12, 24 months ago with interest rate rises and cost of living. And I think Jesus helps us in verse 13. This is where we'll finish. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What is it about having two masters that you can't serve both. In fact, actually, I can imagine a scenario where you could have two masters and serve both. But both of those masters would have to have the same priorities. It's not the nature of slavery that means you can't have two masters. The problem with serving two masters is the nature of the master. You cannot be a slave to God and money because they have different priorities. They place opposite demands on you. Money says, get, 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 take, take, take. God says, give, give, give. Money says, Think of numero uno, me first. God says, love your neighbor and give generously toward them. Money says, if, if you need to bend the line a little bit and fudge the numbers and tell a little white lie to get ahead, so be it. And God says, be straight as an arrow with your finances and don't let it cause offence. The demands that these two make are diametrically opposed to one another. And so you cannot be a slave to God and money. You must choose. Why is this text here? Why does Luke put it right here in Luke 16? Why does he put it there? 
because it comes right after Luke 15. And in Luke 15, you have three points made. It's the parable of the lost son. Before that, you have a woman who rejoices over a coin. You have a shepherd who rejoices over lost sheep. And you conclude, women love coins, shepherd loves sheep. And you have a father who rejoices over a lost son returning. God the Father loves people. He rejoices over people coming to salvation. And if that's the case, how should we use our money? To invest in gaining people for Christ by giving up what you cannot keep in order to gain what cannot be lost. And the only way we can sincerely do that is if you have made God your master and not money. I was nine years old when I came to believe in Jesus, accepted Him as my Savior for the forgiveness of my sins. It wasn't until I was 20, I think, that I actually made Him my master. You see, there's people that say you have to do both at the point of salvation. I don't think that's true. I think you can come to belief and salvation in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. But sometimes it can take a little while before He becomes your master. And sometimes you have to do it again and again in certain areas of your life. And this is one of those areas where I think we have to keep an eye on. Is Jesus our master? Is he the master of my soul? Because if he isn't, we will see money as something to take and gain and hold on to and accumulate. But if Jesus is our master, we will give, we will invest in a kingdom that is not here in its entirety. And so as the band comes up and I pray, I wonder if you would just take some time to ask the question, who is the master of your soul? Is it money? Is it something else? There's plenty of idols to choose from. Or is it Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scriptures and what it teaches us. We thank you for the way that you have blessed us, that we all have money. You have given it to us to steward. And so I pray that you would help us to steward it wisely. 
to invest into something that never runs out, something that is eternally smart and wise to give to, a kingdom that never ends. And so I pray for us as your people, Lord, that if there are opportunities in front of us where we can use our money to invest in a kingdom, God, that we would see those opportunities and we would take them even though it will cost us in the short term. And so I just pray by your Holy Spirit, you'd just be bringing to mind places, people, and ministries, and missions that you would have us give our finances to. Lord, I thank you for this church and the influence that you give us and the places where we can invest our money. And um, I'm so thankful for this congregation who's sown into that. Help us to be wise and invest our tithes and offerings into the kingdom, Lord, and to look for those opportunities. We pray more and more people would come to know Jesus because of the way that we use our money. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.